This morning and in then in the weeks ahead, we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. So let me start with an introduction to the book. The first thing to be aware of is that this book is anonymous. In that sense, it's unique among the New Testament books. Now, of course, there are plenty of theories about who wrote this book. Lots of people have been suggested as the author, but we simply don't know who it was. So I'm not going to try and guess. But we do know the author was well known to the early Christians. At the end of the book, he mentions our brother Timothy. Timothy was a prominent figure in the early church. So we know that our writer was accepted among the apostles. Like the other New Testament books, Hebrews was understood to be written by someone who spoke from God. Well, then what about the people Hebrews was written to? The recipients of this book. Well, we have quite a clear picture of their situation. The book gives it to us. These people live in a time and place where it is not easy to be a Christian. They live at a time when the cost of having a Christian commitment is that society is marginalizing them. It's pushing them out of the mainstream and onto the fringes of society. But these men and women are not just being overlooked. Living as a Christian regularly brings hostility from society. And they are at least threatened with more severe persecution. How are these people reacting to their situation? They're tired. They're weary of being the brunt of hostility. They're fed up with the shame that comes from associating with Christ. They're sick of being ostracized for their commitment to Christ. And they're afraid of what might happen in the future. And that weariness and fear means they are on the verge of giving up. Their commitment, in many cases, is beginning to fade. Some of them aren't even showing up at church anymore. And even those who are showing up, they're just becoming lazy and lethargic in their faith. They're disheartened, they're wavering. They're wondering if it's even worth it to follow Christ. These people are not moving forward in their Christian commitment. They're not pressing on to greater maturity. Many of them seem to have lost sight of the prize ahead of them. It seems some of them are tempted to switch to another faith, one that's more tolerated by society. That was the case at this time with Judaism. And it seems that has made Judaism an attractive option for some of these Christians. Wouldn't it just make things easier if we switched to a faith with more traditions, more rituals, a kind of religion that doesn't seem to annoy people the way Christianity does? That's the context this book is written to. So how does the writer of Hebrews approach these people? How does he speak to these disheartened and weary Christians? 
he brings them a word of encouragement. As he comes to the end of the book, that is how the writer sums up all that he's written. This book is here to encourage weary Christians. The word can also be translated exhort, which is a little firmer. It's also here to exhort lazy, sleepy Christians. How does the author do that? How does he encourage these discouraged people? He points them to Jesus. He doesn't say, look, here's something new that I have for you. He says, look what God has already given you. Jesus is God's gift to you. He is your treasure. And you've hardly begun to grasp just what a treasure he is. You've hardly begun to see the full significance of what you have in Jesus Christ. And so for 13 chapters, this book works hard to show us what we have. Just like a visitor to the Tower of London might take a walk right around the crown jewels to see every angle of those amazing gemstones. In a similar way, the writer of Hebrews takes us on a walk around Jesus to show us from every angle who he is and what he has done and what we can still count on him to do in the future. And along the way, our writer stops regularly and he says, see, see what you have. See this incomparable treasure that is Jesus. How could we turn back when we have this? How could we give up? Isn't that out of the question? Wouldn't it be utter folly to give up or go back? Surely the only thing that makes sense is to go on, to cling to this treasure and all that he gives us, to follow this Savior, to the rest and the life that are waiting at the end of the journey with him. That is how our writer speaks to these weary people in their hard situation. And his answer is equally valid for our hard situation. Our time and place parallels theirs in many ways. And like these early Christians, what we need is not something new. We need a better grasp of what we already have. We need a long, careful look at Jesus, our treasure. That is the antidote to our weariness and our discouragement and our fear. So there's our introduction. As we turn now to the beginning of the book, we find our writer laying the foundation for everything that's going to follow. As he begins to talk about Jesus, our treasure, he tells us Jesus is God's final word. If you haven't found Hebrews yet, it's on page 1201 or in the large print 1860. I'm going to read from chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 4. In the past... 
God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is God's word. The book of Hebrews begins with a series of statements about Jesus Christ, followed by seven Old Testament quotations applied to Jesus Christ. And then our writer stops and he says to us, see what you've got. Don't let it go. Don't walk away from it. Don't drift away from it. Instead, pay closer attention to what you've got. First, verses 1 to 3 tell us, God has spoken through his Son. The book begins by telling us God is a speaking God. 
He had spoken before Jesus came. Verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Literally, in many pieces and in various ways. This is a reference to the Old Testament. How did God speak in the Old Testament? Well, that sounds like a stupid question. In words, of course. Yes, but not only in words. As this book goes on, we'll see what the writer means when he says God spoke. He spoke just as much through his works as he did through his words. So, for example, he spoke through his work of creation. That reveals God to be a creating God, a God who brings life. God spoke through the exodus from Egypt. That reveals him to be a saving, delivering God and also a God of judgment. God's people were saved at the exodus, but the enemies of God were destroyed, the Egyptian army. When God set up the priesthood and the tabernacle, then he revealed himself to be a holy God. When he led Israel into the land of Canaan, he revealed himself to be a promise-keeping God and a God who gives his people rest. You get the idea. All through the Old Testament, God spoke through his deeds. And he explained his deeds through the words of the prophets. God spoke in a double-barreled way. And the book of Hebrews is going to make heavy use of what God said in the Old Testament. In fact, the whole book has been described as a sermon on the Old Testament. It quotes the Old Testament nearly 40 times, and it makes reference to it constantly. And always the purpose is to say, this was great. It was. But Jesus is greater. The writer wants us to see how Old Testament promises and hopes and shadows are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. One theologian puts it like this, when we move from the Old Testament to Jesus, we discover that hope turns into history. What was anticipated is fulfilled. What has been begun is accomplished. And that's the movement we find here in the opening two verses of the book. After telling us God spoke in the past in many pieces and in various ways, verse 2 says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. The writer wants us to see this is God revealing himself in, on a whole new level. The prophets were God's friends, but Jesus is God's son. And what that means is shown in verse 3. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. To see the Son is to see God. To know the Son is to know God. God's glory is his presence. 
In the Old Testament, how did God show his presence on earth? How did he represent himself to his people? How did he show the glory of his presence? He showed it through cloud and fire. After the Exodus, God visited his people on Mount Sinai. We're told the mountain was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Later, when the tabernacle was built, a cloud covered the tabernacle and then filled it. The cloud was the glory of the Lord among his people. And from then on, God led his people in a pillar of cloud by day, which became a pillar of fire by night. But now, God has represented himself on earth, not in fire and smoke, but in his Son. Suddenly, this is personal. God has put on flesh and bones. He's not just giving us information about himself, like he did with the law and the prophets. Now, God is giving us himself. There can be no greater revelation of God. Why? Because now we can know him through relationship. Not just through symbols. Not just through information about him. Jesus is God's final word because there can be no greater word. And God's final word came not only in Jesus' words, but also in his actions. Verse 3 tells us Jesus provided purification for sins. That's a reference to his death on the cross. That event was God speaking through Jesus. Here is where you come for cleansing and forgiveness. I've made that cleansing available through my son's sacrifice of himself. The rest of the book will have much more to say about that sacrifice. But the point here is, both the words and the work of Jesus are God's final word to us. So we could sum it up like this. Jesus is the personal and perfectly effective revelation of God. Verse 3 says, after he had made purification for sins, he sat down. He sat down because that's what you do when you're finished. The work was done. Nothing more needed to be done. The cross opened the way to reconciliation with God. Jesus' work of atonement was perfectly effective. Then verses 4 to 14 tell us God has set his son in the highest place forever. Before we try to understand this, notice how the opening three verses already told us the son is the heir of all things. They told us it was through the son God made the universe. 
and the Son sustains all things by his powerful word. In other words, the Son has always had a high position. Even before he put on flesh and bones, the Son shared his Father's position and power and work. But through his work on earth, the Son entered into something new. The risen Jesus had achieved something which had not been achieved before. And so, the Son, when he was risen and exalted to heaven, received new honor and glory. We heard that in the words we started with this morning from the book of Revelation. They described the risen Jesus being received in heaven with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased people for God. It's that new honor and worthiness the writer of Hebrews deals with in verses 4 to 14. And he does it by contrasting Jesus with angels. Look back to the middle of verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The first question we probably have is, why bring angels into this? I think the simple reason is, as human beings, we have a habit of forgetting how special Jesus is. The Bible has a reasonable amount to say about angels. They crop up all the way through Scripture. And clearly, they play a part in God's work. But they are never center stage. Angels are like stage hands who raise the curtain and switch the set between acts. They're never in the spotlight. But we can become fascinated by them. If you want proof of that, start counting how many people have tattoos of angels watching over them or watching over their kids. People are always looking for some extra leverage in the spiritual world some extra spiritual cover. In the New Testament times, the Jews had an incredibly developed angelology. They had detailed theories about them. They were fascinated by angels. And it seems these Christians are being tempted to plug into that. Maybe for some extra spiritual cover in their hard situation. And today, it's not only angels people look to for that. How many people try to get in touch with dead relatives for a bit of help or some advice in a difficult time? It goes on all the time. But the writer of Hebrews says, why would you go that way? God has given you a Savior who is in the highest place, far above any other spiritual or angelic power. And to make the point, the writer gives us seven quotations from the Old Testament. Here's what we need to know about them. They are all here 
to make the same point. Writers at this time would sometimes string quotations together in a chain, a bit like a string of pearls. And the idea was not to go into detailed examination of each one. The idea was the cumulative effect of the quotations. They come at you one after another to show how strong the point is. And here the point is, don't get sidetracked by angels or any other spiritual power. God's Son is in the highest place, and he always will be. In the original context, most of these quotations were spoken to Israel's anointed king. The word used in the Old Testament for God's king was his Messiah. Some of these words were written to commemorate the king's coronation. In this country, we mint coins and we produce special china to mark a coronation. In Israel, they produced coronation psalms. Some of the quotations are taken from those. Some of them are promises about a future king who would come in the line of David. And some of these quotations were originally references to God himself being king of the universe. The writer of Hebrews strings them all together for us. He gives them to us like a necklace of pearls and he says these all apply to the risen Jesus. They had meaning in their original context, of course. But their ultimate meaning is found in Jesus. Their meaning has not changed. These words fit the situations they were written for. They fit the coronation of God's Old Testament king. And Jesus is the king who is God. They fit him in an even more perfect way. And so the writer is prodding us to see why would we look elsewhere for spiritual cover and help? Why would we look to dead relatives or to other saviors or to angels? For, verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. In fact, verse 6, God's angels worship the Son. And verse 7, the role of angels is changeable. They may be reassigned in their service for God. They may be deployed as spirits, then later as flames of fire. But the Son's role and position will never change. Verse 8, but about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The risen Jesus shares the honor and position of the Father. And that will never change. Verse 10. In the beginning, Lord, you lay the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those 
who will inherit salvation. There is an unshakable permanence to Jesus' position. Nothing in creation shares that unshakable permanence. Not even spiritual beings like the angels. Angels might be fascinating. They might appeal to our spiritual curiosity, along with plenty of other things. But none of those things will ever share the Son's position or power or permanence. And so let's make him our focus. Let's put our trust in his perfectly effective work on the cross and his eternal enthronement in the highest place. God has spoken through his Son. God has set his Son in the highest place forever. And now we get the punchline. All that we've heard so far has been building to these words at the start of chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God has spoken through his Son. He has set his Son in the highest place forever. And there will be no other word from God. So then, there is nothing more important than paying attention to Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 2 uses two terms that come from the world of shipping. The word translated, pay the most careful attention, originally referred to steering a ship towards port. And the word translated, drift away, is the opposite. It means failing to get the ship to port. The picture then is pretty clear. Nothing can be more important in life than paying the most careful attention to Jesus. Only Jesus can get us safe to shore. Why? Because he is God's final word. Look again at how it's put in verse 2. The contrast. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The message spoken through angels was God's Old Testament word. The Bible says angels played some part in delivering that word. And disobeying that Old Testament word or failing to listen to it was a really serious thing. It resulted in punishment. And so the writer says, how much more then must we be careful to pay attention to this word of salvation delivered through Jesus? If we ignore it or if we drift away from it, there is no other salvation available to us. 
The writer reminds us how God worked hard to underline this for us. Verses 3 and 4 mention how God testified to his final word with signs, wonders, and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. All of that is described in the book of Acts. The authenticating power that accompanied the gospel message. The point is, God left no stone unturned to announce his final word with a fanfare. And then to deliver it to us through the apostles' teaching. The rest of this book will help us pay careful attention to God's final word. This book will walk us around this treasure we have in Jesus Christ. But here's the opening message of the book. There is nothing else. Jesus is it. And he is enough. The salvation he has provided is enough. There's no other salvation. So if you're wondering what Christianity is about, if you're just beginning to investigate it, you need to know it's all about Jesus. Christianity is a call to trust in Jesus, to put your faith in who he is and what he's done. He's God's final word because he is all you need. If you want to get to the heart of Christianity, then pay the most careful attention to Jesus. Then if you are a Christian and you're weary or disheartened or you're afraid, what you need to know is the answer to your difficulties is not to turn back. The answer to your problems is not to look for something new. The answer is to pay more careful attention to what you already have. Take a long, fresh look at Jesus. Examine this treasure God has given you. If you've been looking for some new power to try and tap into, if you've been searching for some special experience to try and juice up your life, the book of Hebrews tells you you're wasting your time. There is nothing above Jesus. There's nothing that can substitute for Jesus or add to Jesus. The answer to our lethargy and our fear is to pay more attention to him until we grasp more of his significance and more of his sufficiency. So let's ask God to help us do that in the weeks ahead. And let's respond now as we sing together. In Christ alone, my hope is found.